This evening, I invite you to turn to our confessional document, The Canons of Dort, the third and fourth main points of doctrine, and you'll find that on page 906 in the Trinity Psalter Hymnal, 906 or 271 in the Book of Forms and Prayers. I want to read the first three articles, which have to do with human corruption. Article 1, The Effect of the Fall on Human Nature. Man was originally created in the image of God and was furnished in his mind with a true and salutary knowledge of his Creator and things spiritual, in his will and heart with righteousness, and in all his emotions with purity. Indeed, the whole man was holy. However, rebelling against God at the devil's instigation and by his own free will, he deprived himself of these outstanding gifts. Rather, in their place he brought upon himself blindness, terrible darkness, futility and distortion of judgment in his mind, perversity, defiance, and hardness in his heart and will, and finally, impurity in all his emotions. Man brought forth children of the same nature as himself after the fall, that is to say, being corrupt, he brought forth corrupt children. The corruption spread by God's just judgment from Adam to all his descendants except for Christ alone, not by way of imitation, as in former times the Pelagians would have it, but by way of the propagation of his perverted nature. Therefore, all people are conceived in sin and are born children of wrath, unfit for any saving good, inclined to evil, dead in their sins, and slaves to sin. Without the grace of the regenerating Holy Spirit, they are neither willing nor able to return to God, to reform their distorted nature, or even to dispose themselves to such reform. And then if you'll turn in the Word of God to the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, Ephesians 4, I want to pick up the reading in verse 17. You'll find this on page 1,244 in your pew Bibles, Ephesians 4. I want to pick up the reading in verse 17 and read to the end of 24. This is God's Word. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, 
to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Thus far the reading of God's Word. May he add his blessing to it. If you know the letters of the Apostle Paul at all, you'll know that at various times in his letters, he refers to his readers' previous way of life. So, for example, in Ephesians 2, he reminds the Ephesian Christians that before they became Christians, they were dead in their trespasses and sins in which they once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He does the same when he speaks to the Corinthian believers. In chapter 6, he reminds them that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, or swindlers. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says to them, and some of them, or some of you, were some of them. We're following those kinds of practices before God in his grace found you. And when he speaks to the Romans, he says to them in Romans 6 that they were once slaves of sin. And he does that, and that is, he reminds them of their former way of life, though he knows that they are ashamed of their past. Now, why does Paul do that? Why does he bring up the sordid past of his readers? Why doesn't he let bygones be bygones? He knows that that's not how they now are. That's how they once were. But things have become different now. So why does he remind them so often of the way they were, even reminding them of their shameful behavior in the past? Well, I'm sure there are a number of reasons why the Apostle Paul does that. But one of the reasons, of course, is because he has a desire to exalt the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Paul wants to magnify mercy, and he knows that unless we understand ourselves as sinners and continually be reminded of what we are by nature, we will never delight in all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Grace will not be amazing. It will be good. We might even say it's necessary. But it won't leave us gobsmacked. It won't be amazing to us. Grace is only amazing if you understand that it saved a wretch like me. And so Paul is very keen throughout his letters to highlight what sinners were before they learned Christ, how they were before God intervened in a powerful way and changed them to become his own children and co-heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that same impetus in the writers of the Canons of Dort. The Canons of Dort were written by a group of pastors and scholars who were gathered together from various countries in the 1600s and brought to the city of Dordrecht, and they were convened there in order to emphasize and highlight and underscore the sovereignty of God in salvation over against those who 
taught that humans had a significant part to play in their own redemption. And so we've looked at how they emphasized the electing grace of God, that God has before the foundation of the world taken the initiative, and out of the whole mass of humans, He has chosen some who would be the heirs of His salvation. We've seen how they've spoken about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it was not a death that simply made salvation possible so that we would top up what Christ has done by our own efforts, but but it was a death that actually saved sinners. It was a powerful and effective death that actually reconciled sinners to God because in the death of the Lord Jesus, He absorbed in Himself the wrath of God that was owing to us because of our sins. And when we come to the third and fourth head of doctrine, which we will begin looking at this evening, the writers of the Synod of Dorne want to highlight how humanity is corrupt and fallen, and they do so again in order to highlight the sovereign grace of God that redeems sinners. So this evening, I want to turn with you in the Word of God to Ephesians chapter 4, particularly the verses 17 through 19, because here the Apostle Paul gives us a portrait of Gentiles, that is, Gentiles who are not Christians, pagans, and he highlights what sin has left them as, what it means to be outside of the grace, untouched by the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And we'll see that it is not a very happy portrait at all, but one that we must understand about ourselves if we're going to enjoy the riches of God's mercy in Christ. So what does Paul say about the pagans, the Gentiles, the unbelievers? Well, I want you to notice in the first place that he addresses himself to discussing their minds. He says there in verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding. So he addresses their minds in the first place. And he says that they are futile in their minds. The word that he uses is meaningless. It's frustration. You might remember what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 8, that after the fall, God subjected all of humanity and all of creation to frustration, to futility, to meaninglessness. And this is what characterizes the human mind outside of the grace of God. They cannot think properly. Everything about their life lacks significance and gravitas and weightiness. Their life is simply futile. I remember coming across a quote by Jan Arden. She's a Calgarian pop singer of a previous generation, and she had written a book, and she was asked if, if her book, in her book, if there emerged a philosophy of life. And she said this, it's a book about nothing. My life is very boring. I drop off my dry cleaning. I have a coffee, coffee at second cup. I cook dinner for friends, just living life, getting by, waking up, thinking, why am I here? What's going to happen to me when I die? And I remember being struck by how profound this quote was, 
because it summed up so clearly the banality of life lived outside of God in Christ. There is no meaning. There is no significance. It's utterly futile and useless. You go drop off your dry cleaning. You cook dinner. You have coffee. But it doesn't mean anything. There's no purpose. There's no goal. There's nothing transcendent. Nothing that would get you up in the morning and give you a sense of purpose in life. Well, Paul says that's what the Gentiles have. They have a mind that is futile. They may have accomplished great things, as they have. They've built great cities, created huge works, have done great democratic reforms, and, and yet for all of their abilities, it's meaningless because they live their lives outside of Christ. So they are futile in their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. They just don't get it. They grope around looking for things, but never really settling on things. They might capture a corner of reality, but, but never understanding the totality of reality because their thinking is darkened. It's hindered because of sin. That's why the Apostle Paul in this letter has said to the Ephesians that he prayed that, that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened because without the grace of God intervening in people's lives, everything is dark. Everything is, is so nebulous. You can never grab a hold of anything with any certainty because your understanding is darkened and negatively affected. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 that, that God must shine the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If, if anyone is ever going to live in a way that honors God and is free from the blindness of sin that the evil one has brought all humanity into. So their thinking is futile. Their understanding is darkened. And I want you to notice how Paul focuses on their minds. He does this in Romans 1 as well. You might remember as he speaks of the judgment of God that is against uh, all those who are ungodly. He says they became futile in their thinking. Their hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise, but they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. It's all in the mind that sin has so desperately distorted humanity. And that's why when Paul talks about becoming a Christian later on in the passage that he read, that we read, he speaks about how we have learned Christ, how we were taught in Christ, how we heard about the truth that is in Jesus. And so this, this really ought to direct our evangelism. You know, people live the way they do because they think the way they do. And when we look at our unbelieving friends and see the immorality of their lives, our, our first approach is not to address the immorality of their lives, but to address their minds and to highlight for them the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. We need to address them as thinking people, 
people whose thoughts have gone astray, who have become darkened and futile because of sin. But we need to teach them the truth about Jesus Christ. So Paul here, as he describes the pagans, he talks, first of all, of the effect of sin on their minds. But why has their mind gone so bad? What is the cause of such darkness and futility? That's not the way they were created. They were created good, able to think the thoughts of God after him. But now their their thinking has become so distorted in the room. Why is that? Well, he tells us about that as well. First in verse 18, he talks about how the pagans are alienated from the life of God. They were created in His image, in true righteousness and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. When God first created man, He formed them and breathed into him the breath of life. So, so humanity depends for their existence upon God. But, but then when humanity rebelled against God at the instigation of the devil, they became spiritually dead. They were alienated from God. They could no longer think the way that God intended them to think. They could no longer think God's thoughts after Him because they had cut themselves off from the source of wisdom and truth and righteousness. Remember, the psalmist says it is in God's light that we see light. Well, when we're alienated from God, then we're in darkness, and and that's the result of their rebellion. They are alienated from the life of God. And then he also talks about their ignorance that is in them. This is why their thinking has gone so askew. It's because they are ignorant of God. Now, we need to understand the ignorance here, the way the Bible understands ignorance. It's not that humanity doesn't know there's a God. They do. Creation declares the glory of God. And within themselves, within their conscience, humanity knows that there's a God. In fact, Paul says in Romans 1 that they know not only that there's a God, but that their disobedience will bear the judgment of God. So within us and all around us, God testifies to His own existence so that we do not need to argue for the existence of God. Humanity knows that God exists. But this ignorance here is is not a knowledge of God. It has to do with a relationship with God. They've refused Him. They've rejected Him. The God they know they've turned against. Instead of worshiping the Creator who is over all, they've worshiped creatures, fabrications of their own mind, the futility of their own understanding and darkened understanding. They do not know God. They have rejected Him. And in rejecting him, they have become futile and darkened. And so Paul says that their darkness and their futility is because of their alienation from the life of God. It's because of the ignorance that is in them, that is the ignoring of God that they have done. And that's all due to their hardness of heart. Their heart has become marble-like impervious to any connection with God and with truth. They have willfully rebelled against God, and their heart has become so hard 
so that they're unable to know God. They're hostile to him. They, it's not just that they ignore him, but they hate him, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8. That's what is wrong with humanity, a hard heart leading to ignorance of God, leading to alienation from God, which results in the futility of their minds and the darkening of their understanding. And what is the result of this kind of sin? Well, Paul tells us that in verse 19, they become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The mind outside of Christ will always pursue wickedness. You cannot be good without God. Now, you might argue with me on that point because you know unbelievers, those who do not know Christ, and some of them are excellent people. They're kind. They're generous. They give of themselves for others. They place themselves in difficult situations sometimes to to help other people who are in need. They're kind to their wives. They're generous to their children. Certainly, what Paul says about humanity can't be as it can't be, it can't be true because, because the evidence around us seems to, to counter this. Well, it is true that people are kind and generous and self-giving, but that's because of the grace of God in their lives, not the saving grace of God, but His common grace, His restraining grace whereby he doesn't allow people to be as bad as they could be. And it's also in our culture because of the the residue of a Christian heritage. There's a, a book written a number of years ago by an atheist, and he surveyed human history and said that some of the, the greatest humanitarian efforts have come because of Christians. It's Christians who outlawed abortion. It's Christians who protected the rights of women. It's Christians who fought against infanticide. It was Christians who resisted slavery. It was Christians who built hospitals. And so we, we live in a, in a post-Christian era, but, but we still live on borrowed capitals. The laws of our land are still, by and large, laws based upon the Word of God and the truth of God that was once confessed by our forefathers. And so there's a residue of Christian influence in our culture. It is rapidly disappearing. But it's that residue that makes people appear to be better than what the Apostle Paul says they are here in Ephesians 4. But just go to pre-Christian cultures. Go to animistic cultures. Read up about other places where, where they do not worship God, and you will be horrified at the, the wickedness, the debauchery, the godlessness of those cultures. And Paul was well aware of that, that these Ephesian Christians, they, they used to be like this. They used to be godless and wicked and debauched in their lives before they came to know Jesus Christ. He says they become callous. Now, you children know what a callous is. If you work hard one day, maybe with a shovel, the, the, 
the, the palm of your hand has raised parts on it because the skin is, is, is rubbed with the friction against the, the shovel handle, and, and then it becomes harder. And, and uh, soon, if you do it long enough, work hard enough, you, you don't have much sensitivity in your palm on those points because you have calluses, and they protect you from, from pain. They make you insensitive. And Paul says that, that's what happens to unbelievers outside the grace of God. They become callous. They, they do not know how to be ashamed. They don't blush anymore at their sin and wickedness. They're, they're open about it. They're, they're proud of their debauchery. I mean, we see this all around us in our culture. There, there's no embarrassment anymore. People describe the things that they do, and, and they do it with, with, with courage and with boldness and, and as, as if it were the most important most normal thing in the world for them to do such things. And Paul says that's, uh, that's a result of sin. It has distorted them and ruined them so bad they've become callous. And then he says they have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. They throw off all restraints. They're never satisfied. They go from one degree of debauchery to another degree. They are increasingly wicked. They pursue increasing godlessness. They become extreme in their disobedience. You can see this in our culture. Things that would have been unthinkable 10 years ago, wasn't even on our radar, now common for us. That's because of sin in the human heart. This is Paul's description of pagans, of those untouched by the grace of God. And we look at this and we, we shudder to think that we would be like this if God had not intervened, if He had not chosen us from before the creation of the world, if He had not brought us out of darkness and into His marvelous light, if He had not taken out a heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh, if He had not drawn us to the Lord Jesus Christ so that we trusted Him as our Savior, if God hadn't done His grace in our lives, this is what we would be. This is how we would live. And we would have only a fearful expectation of the judgment of God at the end. It's mercy that we aren't like this. It's grace. Because as you think about this, as you, as you read Paul's description of Gentiles futile in their minds, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, ignoring God, having a hard heart, there's no way someone like this would ever call upon God for mercy. There's no way anyone would ever take the first step to God or even prepare themselves to receive the grace of God because they are so anti-God, they have such a hostility and hatred towards Him that if anyone is going to be saved, if any sinner is going to be redeemed, it must start with God and His sovereign initiating grace. There could be no other way of redemption. So that's Paul's big emphasis. Because you remember how he, he says in the first chapter that his concern is to praise God's glorious grace. It is in order that God would be glorified. That salvation is designed by God in the way that it is. 
so that no human would take any credit for themselves. All we can say about ourselves is that we are wretches, that if God were to leave us to ourselves, we would be beasts, or as Calvin says, God has bundled up all humanity in one bundle, and and he finds nothing in them but wickedness and corruption. Now, I don't like to hear that about myself, and I don't imagine you like to hear that about yourself. We like to entertain good thoughts about ourselves. We, we recognize that we're, we're not perfect. We're not what we should be. But certainly we aren't that bad, are we? Yes, we are. But the wonderful thing is, is that God is gracious and merciful, that He who created us in the beginning by His sovereign grace has recreated us in Christ, has made us new creatures has taken the spiritually dead and has made them alive, has taken the ignorant and has taught them the Lord Jesus. He's taken the alienated and has welcomed them into his life and friendship. It is grace, tis mercy all immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Because had it not been grace, well, you don't even want to think about what you would be. You don't even want to consider where you would go because sin has so devastated us and so ruined us but grace has come to redeem us and so we say amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me not that saved someone who had a few infelicities no that saved a wretch like me I once was lost but now I'm found was blind but now I see. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God, we love your free and sovereign grace. We confess that without it we would be thoroughly lost. And we worship you that you have had mercy upon us, not just in time, but before time, before the creation of the world, you chose us to be holy and blameless before you. Given us a Savior in our Lord Jesus Christ. And what is so astonishing to us is that he was willing to be considered the greatest sinner the world has ever known, even though he was the greatest follower, the greatest obeyer of his sovereign God's commands. And so we bow before you to worship you, to thank you for the Lord Jesus, and to pray that you would uh, work in us by your Holy Spirit that we might never entertain ever good thoughts about ourselves that makes us boast in ourselves but that we would always boast in the God of our salvation and cry out with Jonah, salvation is of the Lord. We pray that you would go with us in our week this week, that you would enable us to do all that you call us to do for your praise and glory, not for our self-aggrandizement. We pray that you would keep us from sin, that you would mature us and build us up in the faith that you would use us to testify to those around us of your saving grace, 
and that we might have opportunity to speak to others of the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. Hear us, O merciful Father, and answer us, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.